I, um, I, don't, I got a really fancy pants introduction today. Is everyone ready for that? Yeah, we're just going to read the Bible. So, you like that? So, uh, let's, uh, Mark 10, we're going to start at verse uh, 13. Um, and um, I'll make a few comments as we go. And uh, let's just see, uh, let's see how we go with this today. Um, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. Now, if you were in the time of Jesus and you had kids, would you want to get your kids to him? <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? I just got to get them to that guy. Seriously. You know, like if you had any kind of idea that there was any kind of prayer pecking order, that would be the guy you'd want to pray for your kids, wouldn't you? So let's just get into that guy, right? And so obviously there's a bunch of parents with kids just kind of going, let's get them to Jesus. You know, now that's actually not a bad mode of operation, is it? You meet someone else, you go, I've got to get them to Jesus. If we can just get them to Jesus, they'll be okay. Is that true? Who here knows that's true for them? If I can just get to Jesus, I'll be okay. All right. And you know, sometimes it's hard to get to Jesus, isn't it? Just within yourself. You can get stuck in stuff. Anyway, now bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them. And the disciples, what did they do? They said, yeah, bring it on. Come on, let's get them all in. No, they said, they rebuked them. Get away. What did Jesus do? When Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. For to such belongs the, the, the kingdom of God. You know, I often have chats with my boys about, what is it about Jesus that you're looking forward to the most? You know, because he really likes kids. Do you see that? He really likes them. It's like the disciples, maybe they're just going, we're just doing adult things here and the kids are just messing with their adult plans. And Jesus goes, no, I, I'm keen for a rumble, maybe. All right? Or I'm keen to have a kid on my lap and I'm just keen to, let's just pray with these kids, you know? And it's a bit weird. You look at it, you kind of go, oh, he's touching kids. Well, that's what kids do, isn't it? You know, young kids, what do they do? They just want to go up and touch and sit and climb on the back and... I remember a mate of mine said he was putting some wood in the fire and one of his sons just said, oh, here's a mountain. And he starts scaling up his back, you know. That's just kind of what kids do, right? And isn't it beautiful that Jesus says, no, let them come. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. See, this is why Project Kids for us is not about babysitting, all right? Project Kids is as important to us as what happens in here, okay? Because it belongs, the kingdom of God belongs to kids as much as it belongs to adults. Truly, I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Isn't that beautiful? Get that blessing. That would be a good one. I just want to pause and there's going to be a few digressions today, all right? David Powlison says he's never met a nuance that he didn't love and that's probably my curse too, which is why I talk for so long. So uh, my apologies for that. But let's just, just pause for a minute. You know what Jesus is saying here? He's saying... You don't need to be childish in your faith. You need to be childlike. You know, one of the things that the project has been absolutely passionate about since the start of it is that we want you to be deep, thoughtful people. All right? Really deep, thoughtful people. We don't want you to be childish in your understanding of Jesus. But we do want you to be childlike. All right? Any up for an encouragement today? You know, one thing that I reckon is just wonderful about the project and one thing that's wonderful about preaching to you, and do you know what? Guest, guest speakers have said this to me before. 
they said to me, the people in your church seem to just want to follow Jesus. Do you know what that sounds like to me? That actually sounds like you're actually, you've got a childlike faith. It's like, yeah, think about it, right? Don't be a doofus about the Bible. Think about it and work out what it means. And you probably need to go home and make sure, like the Bereans did in Acts, you go home and you check to make sure what Sondergeld said was right, okay? But the overwhelming feel of this church is that people in this church hear what's true and they kind of go, huh, okay, if that's what Jesus says to do, I I guess I better just go and do it. (laughs) You with me? I love that about you. It makes it really, really easy to lead you. It's beautiful. And I just want to encourage you to keep doing it. Keep doing it. Keep having that childlike response. (coughs) But you know what? There's actually some people in the project that don't do that. Some of you are going, is he talking about me? You know, there's people, and I've met with some of these people this week, there's people that require too many arguments, they deliberate over really simple things, they give you counter-arguments, they quote Bible verses to neutralise things that you're saying when it's just clear that God's saying something and they've got to go and do it. They kind of think they know best and they kind of think that the kingdom's something that they lay hold on when they're ready and they'll control it, thanks. That's kind of not a kid's way of doing it, is it? A kid's way is kind of like what most of you do, all right? A kid's way is like, Okay, so what are you telling me? You're telling me that God's my father? Yes, I am. You're telling me he really, really loves me? Yes, I am. He really, really, really loves you. So you're telling me I can trust him if he asks me to do something? Yes, yes, you can. And then you just go and do it. And most of you do that. And I just encourage you, keep doing that. Keep being childlike in your faith. And what I want you to notice here is uh, Mark's just actually paired up two stories that are really interesting. You just got this story about how you receive the kingdom of God. Do you notice there that you receive the kingdom of God? And then he pairs up the very next story uh, with that one. And here's how it goes. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, That's an interesting question. Let me make a couple of comments about the question. That's probably the best question that anyone's asked Jesus in the whole of the book of Mark or up to chapter 10. All right? That's a good question. You with me on that? But that's a different question to what Jesus just said about how you get the kingdom of God, isn't it? He said you get the kingdom of God by receiving it. And this man is saying, how do I get it? What do I have to do to get it? Interesting question. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. Let's just pause for a minute. What commandments has Jesus picked out there? What, what do they have to do with? What's in common between them? Anyone got an idea? It's like, a, where's the church mouse? Why does the church mouse? Any ideas? Yeah, they're all to do with other people. Notice that? What, what, is, um, what do you think Jesus is saying? I think what Jesus is saying is he's saying what it says in lots of places in the Bible, that what you do in your relationships with other people is what your relationship with God is like. Okay? Now, Ed Welsh uh, in... Uh, <coughs> a big counselling subject that we ran at the church here last 
uh, sorry, last semester, he made this pretty challenging comment. He said, if you want to know what your relationship with God is really like, look at your worst relationship and how you're handling your worst relationship. That is the best indicator of what your relationship with God is like. Okay? Now, some of you might go, that's a bit harsh, except when you read 1 John. 1 John is clear that if you say that you love God and you don't love your brother who you can see, you're lying and you're deceived about how much you actually love God. Okay? It doesn't mean that all your relationships have got to go well. It just means how are you handling it uh, tells you uh, what you're doing with God at that point in time. Let's uh, restart in there. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, what did he do? He loved him. And he said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions now back up with me to the top line as you're sitting out on his journey a man ran up and knelt before him does anyone know um, how this man is normally referred to like what's what's the title that people normally give him in the bible sorry a bit louder yeah the rich rich young ruler all right now what's interesting about that is in uh, matthew matthew calls him young and luke calls him rich sorry luke calls him a ruler okay what does Mark call him? Just a man. What do you reckon Mark calls him just a man? Any ideas? Sorry? You see, if, um, if Mark called him uh, young, everyone who's old would just go, oh, this is not really for me. Wouldn't it? And if, uh, if Luke calls him a ruler, then you'd just be going, oh, that's, that's not for me either because I'm not a ruler. It's a bit like what Royce has just said there, all right? He's a man. It's like, that's everyone. We're all in the same boat. And that's, I don't know whether you notice this, Mark's been up, up to this the whole way through, right? He's always pressing for you to respond to Jesus. That's what he's doing. Um, so let's keep going. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Westerners, oh, do, do you hear that? Like this is the vending machine, let the coin actually drop in and hit the coin box kind of moment, right? Where Jesus is saying, it's going to be really difficult for you to enter the kingdom of God if you're rich. Now, later on, I'm going to show you a chart that Australia's in the top 20 out of the top, out, out of 190 different countries in terms of wealth, all right? And you might go, I don't have much money. Well, you've got a lot more than a lot of other people in the world everyone and jesus would say to you today how difficult it is for rich people to enter the kingdom of god and the disciples were amazed at his words it's not a classic line they were amazed at his words but jesus said to them children how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of god it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of god now a couple of quick points here all right some of you might go Man, like the church, why does the church just have to talk about money all the time? Anyone feeling that? You just kind of go, oh, every time we come to church, they're talking about money. Well, you know what? Do you know that Jesus talks 10 times more about the dangers of money than he does about romance and sex? Did you know that? He talks 10 times more about the dangers of it. Now, I tend to be particularly uncomfortable talking about money in a church, okay? But one of the pressures, in a sense, good pressures that I feel, 
in the church here is that if Jesus talks a lot about money, then we just need to talk about money a bit. All right? Because it's, it's something that we need to be aware of. Now, what's the, uh, the analogy Jesus gives here? He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person and in the kingdom of God. Now, has anyone heard this whole story about no, there's a gate in the wall of the city and it's called the eye of the needle and if a camel gets down on its knees and it takes its pack off and you heard that who's heard that it's complete bollocks all right it's just not if you read anyone that knows anything about history and theology i'll tell you that's just a complete g up and it's not true but so here's the thing what's jesus saying he's saying get a sewing needle and stick a camel through it what's his point yeah like he said really hard (laughs) i love understatements that's going to be hard some of you go i'm going to try it when i get home neighbor's got a camel i've got a needle let's have a crack it's impossible right that's the point um let's keep going and they were exceedingly astonished (coughs) and said to him then who can be saved Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Now, as you read this, you should actually be getting a similar kind of feel as to what he was just saying about receiving the kingdom of God like a child, right? You don't get the kingdom of God by getting it. You get it by receiving it. It's a gift. Do you get that sense? So Peter, the spokesman for the group, a bit of uh, self-congratulation going on here. Peter began to say to him, See? We've left everything and followed you. We're kind of the good guys. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And the last, first. What's Jesus saying? You can't outgive me. All right? That's what it is, isn't it? At the end there, it's just like, you can't outgive me. I'm going to outgive you all the time. So you give me a bit, I'll give you a hundred. All right? And it'll be in different ways in this world, but it, it certainly it's going to happen. So three things out of this passage. Don't miss the man, don't miss life, don't miss Jesus. Here's the first one. I, I want you to notice that this man is a good man. Like there's, there's, when I first started reading this, I thought, yeah, let's have a crack at this guy. All right? But the more I read about this guy, the more I thought, this guy is a really, really good man. You know what he is? He's a running man. Do you see that there? There's an urgency about what he's doing. Not only a running man, but he's a kneeling man. He actually comes up to Jesus and has a physical posture of kneeling. Now, some of you are probably really uncomfortable when Gilly asked you to raise your hands before. Okay? Now, no one gets uncomfortable doing that at the football. Okay? Do they? Or the cricket. That's kind of what we do. But I actually think that physical posture has a whole lot to do with where someone's spiritual posture is. And this may be the case for this man. He's coming up and he's kneeling. He's not just a kneeling man, he's a rich man. He's a successful man. And you know what? I think he's a really wise man because he asks a really good question. There's a problem with it, but he asks a really good question. He's a respectful man, isn't he? The posture of his body, kneeling before Jesus. He's an earnest man. He's an earnest man who gave Jesus a sincere tribute, didn't he? He said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's a man, apparently, blessed by God, it would seem, which is why the disciples are kind of going, geez, if a rich person can't get saved, who can be saved? He's a disciplined man. Do you notice his response 
when, uh, when Jesus said you need to keep the commandments, he comes straight back at him and says, yeah, I've done it. Now, you tell me, if someone's being hypocritical, what does Jesus tend to do to people who are hypocritical? Sorry? Yeah, he's pretty harsh toward them, pretty direct with them, right? Do you notice what he does with this guy straight up is he loves him? Do you see that? So it, it's a bit of a tip-off, I think, that this guy's actually not a hypocrite. When he's saying that he's actually kept all the commandments, I reckon he has in terms of the external, outward expression of them. He's an energetic man. Do you notice that? He's really saying to Jesus, what else do I need to do to make it? He's an honest man. He knows that there's something in his life that's not right. Yeah, he's been successful probably politically. He's been successful materialistically. He's been successful morally. But he's an honest man. He knows he's short in something and he needs to square that up. And you know what? I reckon he's probably a good-looking man. Why? Well, you'd have to be, wouldn't you? If you were young and you're a ruler and you're rich, you're probably good-looking. Some of you going, no, I don't think so. I don't even know what a good-looking man looks like. That's I'm on the record for saying that, but I'm sure the ladies here wouldn't. He's a, um, <coughs> he's a genuine man. He's not hypocritical. Jesus loves him. But yet what we actually find here is he's an incredibly needy man, isn't he? And he knows that. And maybe he's a deceived man. Maybe he's thinking that he's kept all the commandments, but he hasn't. He's an earning man, isn't he? What do I need to do to inherit the eternal life? coming right on the back of Jesus saying, unless you receive the kingdom of God like a child. He's a passionate man, isn't he? His quick reply indicated not hypocrisy, but the focus that he's had on the laws of God since he was young. And what we realise at the end of it is that he's a hollow man, isn't he? He's a hollow man. There's a sense that there's something missing in his life. And I want to ask you today, do you relate? Do you relate to that? Do you relate to him that you have most of what you want, yet there's still something missing? And I would ask you today, what are you missing? I've been reading this week a guy called uh, Terry Cooper. This is a bit weird. Terry Cooper writes about Paul Tillich, who writes about Luther. So I'm going to read you a section from Cooper about Tillich, about Luther. You cool with that? Um, really, anyone heard of Tillich? Anyone heard of Luther? few of you okay well you're in a protestant church because of luther all right i'm just letting you know that's gone out rolls all right this is what tillage sorry keeper writes about uh <coughs> about tillage one of the most well-known and deeply appreciated writings of tillage is his sermon you are accepted in, in, in this famous sermon tillage tells us that while there are no substitutes for words like sin and grace there are ways of rediscovering their meaning this rediscovery will lead us down into the depths of human existence. The word sin can be supplemented by the word separation, which Tillich argues is a universal human experience. We're separated from ourselves, from each other, and from the ground of our lives. Uh, this threefold separation constitutes the state of everything that, ex that exists. It is a universal fact. It is the fate of every life. What is uh, Tillich actually saying is he's actually saying if you get right down to it in the core human condition, one of the core realities about humanity is that they're separated, this, this issue of separation. And some of you might have heard of, um, I mean, there's a bunch of kind of psychological theories that like attachment theories and all that sort of stuff that kind of look like they're coming from Tillich uh, and Luther's work on the whole idea of, uh, of separation. But mostly it's, Tillich seems to be the one who's kind of... Um, 
carrying the, the biggest load at this point in time in my, uh, in my, my study of it. But it's really interesting uh, because I think there's something of that that's going on here for the rich young ruler, isn't there? He's kind of coming up and he's just kind of going, yeah, I've got lots of stuff, but I'm actually disconnected. There's something that's disconnected. And uh, it's, it's a common thing for humanity, isn't it? When people get disconnected in relationships, when people get disconnected from God, it just creates a bit of a hole and a bit of a vacuum for people. And I would ask you today, is that where you're at? I remember... Um, hearing someone say a little while ago that uh, some friends at their, um, <coughs> at their school made a deal that no one would talk to them for a while and kind of smoke them out. And some of you have probably been in, in situations like that where people have just kind of gone, we're not going to connect with that person anymore, we're kind of going to smoke them out. And do you know what? That's a really grinding experience. Does it, is anyone know what I'm talking about? When people shut you out and they shut you out of connection, Maybe when your husband or your wife shuts you out or maybe your family kind of shuts you out. That's a really difficult thing to handle. And then you've got on top of that this foundational thing, which I think Tillich is kind of referring to a bit, about how people are kind of disconnected and separated from God. You know, it, it looks to me like Tillich is kind of saying the core kind of human condition has probably got more to do with separation. I probably disagree with him there, but I, I think that the effect of sin is actually separation and i wonder whether this rich young ruler is coming up to jesus and he knows that he's separated he knows that there's something missing there's some life there that he isn't actually connected to and i wonder if you're not following jesus here today whether you feel that do you feel a lack of connection do you feel can you identify with this young man who's kind of got everything but nothing it's just that the thing that he's missing is a thing that's critical for him. He's chosen to do lots and lots of things. And maybe he's done lots and lots of good things, but there's a separation actually going there. And he thinks that the thing that he's missing is something he can do something about. And that is the, the classic kind of thing, isn't it, for people who don't go to church. They kind of say, well, you've got to be good enough for God. Well, this is kind of what this guy is saying. He's kind of going, I've done all the commandments. Tell me what else I need to do to impress God. And Jesus is going, listen, it's actually not about impressing. It's not about you doing something. You see, this is, that's what religion does. Have you noticed that? I remember talking to a lady a while ago who was an Anglican who converted to Buddhism. And the whole thing with Buddhism is you've got to suppress desire and eventually reach nirvana. And I said, how many people do you reckon have done that? And to me, when she replied, I've just gone, three or four. Just going, that is just like pessimism personified, isn't it? Like, yeah, let's convert to a religion where thousands and millions of people have followed it and only a few people have actually made it. Because that's what it is in the Buddhism thing, is it's like there's things that I have to do to get somewhere. And do you know that actually happens in the church too, doesn't it? Doesn't it? I mean, you don't have to be in the church very long and people just start getting the idea that church is about, I've got to be good enough, I've got to look good enough, I've got to sit up, shut up and pay up. That's what you do when you go to church, all right? And you just got to roll out the good behavior. And if you can do that, God has to do what you think he should do. You see, we kind of play a bit of a similar game to the young man here sometimes, don't we? We just kind of go, if I do this, God, you have to do this. And then sometimes when bad things happen to us, we can ask things like, man, I have followed you all of my life. Why did you let this happen to me? 
and it reveals to us that we've got some kind of deal going on where if I do my bit, God has to do his bit and we're not really having a relationship at that point. We're actually trying to manipulate him into the kind of behaviour that we want. You with me? Christian, I'd ask you today, do you feel like you're missing something? Are you happy? I just stop. Can you see any of yourself in the rich young ruler? Can you see any signs in your own life where you're just kind of like, I know that I'm missing something and I think I can get it. Instead of receiving it, you're kind of going, I think I can get it. I think if I just do this or I do that, maybe if I read my Bible, if I go to church, I go to a community group, maybe if I pray enough, I'm just going to get it. When you blow it, you kind of go, if I can be sorry enough and beat myself up enough, I'm going to get it. I can actually get the thing that I want to get. Maybe you've done it well. Maybe people look at you and they kind of go, they've made it. They've made it. They've nailed it. They've got the money. They've got the esteem. They've got the respect. <coughs> Do you ever look at people like that and you kind of go, they look like they've nailed life. Has anyone, have you ever done that? And do you know, the more people I talk to, I mean, Angie and I have just been saying this over the last couple of days, you know, everyone's got a backstory. Everyone's got a backstory, you know. It's just whether people know about it or not. And I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of you and you all look lovely. There you go. You've done your hair and got dressed and put makeup on. Hopefully you're, you're female. You look lovely, you know, but here's the thing. You've got a backstory. And do you know what? If you're anything like me, you're not telling people your backstory. Because what you've learned is that the best way to go about life is a little bit like this, guys, just to nail everything on the surface, get all the money, make it look like you've actually succeeded in the eyes of everyone else rather than let them see what your backstory is. And if you're in this place and you're a Christian... Do you feel anything of what this young ruler feels? Do you feel like you're missing something? I'm not going to read the scriptures, but um, you, know, you can understand why the disciples are kind of amazed that this guy's not going to make it. You know why? Because it was really clear in the Old Testament that if you were doing the right things and you were in the right place with God, what would he do? He'd bless you. He'd bless you. And this guy obviously was blessed, so he must be doing the right things. He must be actually producing what's required. But you can see here with this rich young man is that when it all comes down to it, and we'll get to this a little bit more in a sec, when it all comes down to it, and Jesus says, I want you in the center of your being. What's actually happened is wealth and success has actually taken up residence in the center of your being. And I want you to take that out. That's not your saviour. The only way that you can be saved is if I am actually the person who's the saviour in the middle there and I want you to get rid of that stuff, you actually find the decision point where he works out whether he actually wants life or not. You see, what Jesus is saying to this rich young man is he's saying, tell me about the commandments you've followed. And he says, I've done it all. He's a good man. And so Jesus is kind of saying here again, another thing that he's saying is this. He's saying, it's not what this man's doing with bad moral things it's the problem it's what he's doing with his good things you get that and jesus might say that about us i mean we kind of we scrub up all right don't we or maybe you do we scrub up all right 
But Jesus would hit you up today, not necessarily about, oh, how did you blow it in the last week? I mean, he might hit you up. If he was in this mood, he'd hit, he'd hit you up today about, well, tell me what you did with your good things in the last week. What'd you do with your money? What'd you do with your time? You see, often, you know what we do, is we use things to cover up our struggles, don't we? We use treasure, we use real treasure to make up for our poverty in our spirit. We can use makeup and clothing to cover up our unacceptability uh, internally. We can use our good things to feel superior to other people, can't we? We can use our good things to get other people to do what we want them to. We can use our good things to get control of God, let's be honest. I mean, I'm glad to be preaching on money after the offering's gone around, all right? Because this is not a stitch-up, you know? But I wonder why you... Why, why do you give money? Because you want to? Because you want to be generous like God? Because you should? Because you've heard enough preachers along the way give you a 15-minute offering message that kind of says if you give to God, He's going to give more back to you in return and it's a, some kind of weird investment strategy. You with me? See, the thing about it, what you can see here with this guy is he's kind of going, how can I manoeuvre myself into the place where I've got life? And Jesus is going, what you actually need is a relationship and if you have to manoeuvre and manipulate someone to get a relationship, you don't have a relationship. Do you get that? And so when you actually get in a kind of mindset in your walk with God where you just think, what do I need to do to impress him? What do I need to do to get him to do what I want him to do? You're not doing a relationship at that point. At best, you're doing some kind of business partnership and at worst, you're just doing some kind of manipulation where you've turned him into an object that you're trying to get him to do what you want him to do so that your life works out the way that you want it to. And I'm not having a go at you. That's not life, is it? Who knows that's not life? You know it, it's not life. And that's what Jesus is saying. Stop doing that. Stop trying to be your own saviour. Stop trying to make things work on your own. Second thing, don't miss life. What happens to this guy? Jesus looked at him and loved him and he said to him, you lack one thing. That's a huge call, isn't it? This guy's got everything, probably. He's, he's probably got everything. You lack one thing, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions do you know god for this man was his boss but not his savior do you see that his his success and his money was his savior and jesus says to the man he says what i want you to do is i want you to imagine all of your stuff gone no inheritance no inventory no money no servants no mansions all of that gone all you have is me can you live like that he would ask you that today. You see, if you actually want to be close to God and actually walk with God, you're going to have to take all the things out of your heart that you think are going to save you. And the truth is that probably some of us look at our bank accounts too often. I know I do. You see, it's that extra look that just kind of goes, if I can just get that amount of money, if I can just have that amount of money, if I can just be sure that that's in there, that's going to save me. And that's, not, that's going to mean that I don't need to trust in God. 
And what actually happens to this man is as Jesus comes along and he says, listen, you need to take that saviour out and I need to be the only thing in the middle. What actually happens? He gets sorrowful. You know, the Greek word that's interpreted sorrowful there is exactly the same Greek word that's used to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's sweating drops of blood, thinking about the death that was actually going to be coming his way. Why? Because Jesus was going to know the ultimate dislocation. Jesus was going to lose the joy of his life. He was going to lose the core of his identity on the cross. You remember? Those of you who know it, you remember Jesus said on the cross, he said, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Do you see that? His father was the core of his life. And all of a sudden at that moment, that's gone. And things for Jesus start to fall apart. And I want to suggest to you today that uh, money for this man was the core of his identity in a similar way to Jesus' father was the core of his identity. And to lose his money was actually to lose himself. I want to show you this clip from Iron Man. Who's a superhero movie? Nut. Yeah, cool, like seven of you. That's cool. Um, this is uh, from the first Iron Man movie, and it's a clip, uh, <coughs> excuse me, of a discussion between, well, Tony Stark, who becomes Iron Man, and uh, Dr. Yinsen. And Dr. Yinsen is, uh, is a doctor, he's a Jewish doctor, and he's in captivity in a cave. Tony Stark gets caught, gets thrown in there and they have this conversation. Tony Stark is an incredibly wealthy man uh, and Dr. Yin Sen talks about getting out and going back to his family. It's a, uh, a really insightful conversation. small town called Gomira. It's actually a nice place. Got a family? Yes. And I will see them when I leave here. And you, Stark? Yeah. So you're a man who has everything. <laughs> and nothing. Isn't that a great line? He sounds a a lot like Jesus at that point so you're a man who has everything and nothing because you missed out on the thing that was most significant see this uh, slide up here this is a uh, screen capture from uh, Wikipedia um, and it's uh, it's actually three columns ranking uh, the world nations from richest to poorest okay um, the middle one there is by the World Bank uh, you'll notice there that Australia's 15th over here. That's the IMF. The uh, World Bank, we're 19th in the Central Intelligence Agency. I don't know what they're doing, getting this kind of data, but they're 17th on the list. It's like, we, we've got you now because we know who's the most wealthy nation. Uh, but anyway, they've got data on that. Now, just, uh, I couldn't fit all the rows on. Uh, the column on the left actually has 187 places. The column in the middle has 185 places and the column on the right has 198 places. Okay? So Australia's coming in at, in the top 20. So 
if you look here at the, uh, this is the kind of per capita GDP, gross domestic product, which is kind of like the amount of money each Australian earns, not in terms of their wage, but the kind of product, the amount of product that they uh, generate each year. And you can see with the World Bank one in the middle there, it's about 43,000. But it's not Australian dollars, it's all pretty complicated. But anyway, it's just by way of comparison, you can see where Australia sits in terms of wealth. Now, if Australia is sitting in the top 20, we better take Jesus' words really seriously, yeah? That it's difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> and you can see why the disciples are going, man, if, if someone with wealth can't get in, who can get in? Because they're kind of saying, isn't wealth a sign of God's favour? Well, one of the things uh, I think that we just need to be really careful of is we need to realise what Jesus is saying here is that there's something particularly powerful in money to blind us. And probably in a whole bunch of ways, I'm probably the last person that should be speaking on money. All right? You've heard me say a bunch of times before that if you want to know what the wetness of water is like, don't ask a goldfish. All right? Because that's all they know. Uh, so ask a Westerner to stand up and talk about money and how we're blind to it. Yeah, that's, that's going to work really well, isn't it? <laughs> it's, in a sense, you need to have someone come over from a different culture and say, you guys... Man, let me tell you a few things about that you, you guys don't see about yourself. I think one of the most impacting uh, devotional talks I've ever heard was uh, actually uh, one uh, <coughs> excuse me, Wednesday morning. A guy came into the school here about 17 years ago and he was um, a guy talking about um, how he helped uh, businesses in the third world get up and running so that people can make money and, and uh, get out of poverty, basically. And uh, I, honestly, I don't even remember what he said. Um, from way back then so if you come up to me and say I can't remember what you said last week I'll say yeah that's good that's that's exactly what I do um, but you know what I remembered as I came out of it is I remembered this I remembered coming out of it just thinking it's probably never ever right for me to get completely comfortable with what I'm doing with my money I ought to always just feel a bit of discomfort about it I mean if you're per capita earning 43,000 a year and the lowest one is earning about $600 a year, and it's a nation from Africa, I just better feel the tension of that a bit. And, and you ought to feel the tension of that a bit too. You know, we just got to be really careful with money, you know, because money, well, what can you do with money? Well, you can go to restaurants, you can get a new phone and just kind of go up in the world a little bit. Uh, and maybe it helps you to be in a professional culture, you can buy new things, you can have a nice car. It's probably more important to you than what you know. And there's something particularly powerful in it, as I said, to blind you. I want to show you a, um, another clip. This is uh, Nathan Brown from the, when he was a coach. It's quite an old clip, but I just love it. I just think it's great. He just kind of spells out what everyone's thinking, but they don't say most of the time. This is when Nathan Brown was the, um, the coach of the, uh, the Dragons NRL team. Dragons face the possibility of losing two big names to the lure of the international pay packet. Coach Nathan Brown says you can't blame them for leaving. As the Dragons nurse new recruit Wendell Saylor back to fitness from a broken cheekbone, the club is bracing itself for the loss of veteran prop Jason Riles to the French League. If Joe Blake gets offered an extra 100 grand down the road to build a house, he's going to go and do it. It's always about money. It doesn't matter what part of life you look at. It's always money, money, money. Because the more money people got, the more they can do. And that's all anyone cares about, unfortunately. <laughs> now, he's kind of... I mean, this will be the only time I'll ever say this, so just you can quote me on this. Nathan Brown's sounding a bit like Jesus at that point in time. 
isn't he? It's just like money, 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 man. For this rich guy, it's like it's all about money. Uh, and he doesn't want to let go of it to actually get life in exchange. Uh, so let me throw a couple of questions out to you. How do you know that money is an issue for you? Here's a couple of pointers. Money is probably an issue for you if you can't give large amounts of it away. Now, what am I talking about? Am I talking about actual dollar sums? No, I'm just talking about percentage. Like, when was the last time that you gave away a third of your weekly wage? Now, some of you go, well, that would be, that would be not very good stewardship, Peter. All right? I'm not talking about, like, you give it away and then your family don't eat for five days, right? I'm just talking in a general kind of lump sum kind of deal, like you just, you just give it away. You know, you're wise with your, with your money, but you're just really generous with it. When was the last time you gave a big sum of money away? You've got a problem with money, probably, if you get scared that you might have less than you're accustomed to having. Some of you are going, I don't even have any. Well, I'm getting to you in a minute. What about this one? You've probably got a money issue... If you see people who are doing better than you, even though you've worked harder and you're a better person, and it gets under your skin. And some of you have got a money issue if you think you'd be happy if you had some. (laughs) Money can be a real issue. Who here... um... Here we go. I'm going to ask this. No one's going to put their hand up, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Anyway, who wants to be rich? No, no, come on, be honest about it. Who wants to be rich? Like financially money, hardcore money rich. Who wants to be rich? Okay, all right. Sorry? Um, well, that's a good question. If you ask one of my sons, it'd be uh, having a $10 note in your piggy bank. Uh, well, just having lots of money. Lots of money. I don't have another, another, another vote. It wants to have lots of money, like heaps of money. Cool. All right. Now, is it wrong to be rich? Is it wrong to be rich? So you're all a bit wary right now. He's, gonna, he's, he's setting us up. He's teed the ball up and he's got the one wood out. And what's he going to do with it? Well, listen, I don't think it's wrong to be rich. And rich people have an incredibly huge ability to bless the church don't they who's seen that before generous rich people do more for the kingdom of god that's just crazy how much they do for the kingdom of god isn't it have you seen that and so i would say to you all of you who want to be rich i would say get rich and be really generous with it work out what you need to live on and then just give away the rest all right don't fall prey to that um, economic principle that expenditure always rises to meet income don't do that I mean, the classic line said about uh, John Piper in the States is they reckon he's only got one tweed jacket, all right? And his, in his last year of ministry, the guy, um, I think he was earning $100,000 and he was running this big church and this big um, ministry that he was running. He'd written all these books and you know what he actually said? You know what he actually did with all the royalties that he gets from his books? He doesn't take a cent of it. It all just goes back into ministry. He just goes, I don't need it. And people go around saying, oh, John Piper's only got one tweed jacket. Good on him. He's not rich, but you know, if he kept everything that he had, he'd be super rich. I mean, he's written so many books. He's a very uh, in-demand speaker and uh, an author. 
Here's a word to those who want to be rich. But those who desire to be rich fall into what? Cool. Who's ever played a computer game here? Cool. Do you know how computer games work? Like, if you start at level one in a computer game and the difficulty is at level 35, computer game manufacturers know no one's going to play it, right? Because you get in, you just get whopped, okay? But the deal is you actually get in, you start on level one, the bad guys are big and slow, all right? And you take them out and you go, what a legend I am. And you go on to level two and, and they get a little bit smaller, a little bit quicker and you take them out and you kind of go, yeah, I'm a legend. I'm just getting right into that, <laughs> getting right into this, right? But you get like up to level 10 or 15 or wherever it is and you know what? The bad guys are really small and they're really fast and they're hard to get. And you're probably going to get whopped a few times before you can actually get through the, the level. I think what Paul's saying to Timothy here is, it's not bad to be rich, but you've got to be careful because the bad guys are small and quick and they'll get you, all right? He's just saying there's going to be some temptations that have come. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and, dis- and destruction. So he's saying not only is there a temptation, but there's a lot of people who love this stuff and love money. And the problem is that that gets you. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of what? Evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Be careful. Randy Alcorn's a guy um, who says a whole bunch of really irritating things about money. He's an American guy and he's lost just about most of his money because he protested against abortions and they took him to court and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, he's only on this tiny, tiny wage now. And he writes books and all the royalties from his books go uh, back into ministry because he's not allowed to have it. Here's what he said. Tolstoy said the antagonism between life and conscience may be removed either by a change of life or by a change of conscience. Many of us have elected to adjust our consciences rather than our lives. Our powers of rationalisation are unlimited. They allow us to live in luxury and indifference while others whom we could help if we chose to starve and go to hell. I think that's true. Maybe we wouldn't like to admit it. So what's the hook? What's the barb on the hook? Well, I think Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 6 about riches, what the barb is that keeps the fish on the hook. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Do you hear what he's saying? The temptation when you get money is that you're going to trust in your money and you're going to hope in your money. And Paul's going, don't do that. Hope in God. Don't trust in your money. Hope in God. Don't rely upon it. And then he goes on to say, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up a treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. (coughs) Paul's saying to you today, be generous. That's what he's saying. Be generous. You're all rich. Be generous, don't trust in it, trust in God. And Jesus gives us a bit of a hint as to how you can actually, what the antidote to riches actually is in Matthew chapter 6. Doesn't he? He says, uh, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Listen to this, you know this verse, don't you? For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Now, I, I want to suggest to you today that Jesus has put that in reverse to what we would probably say. 
we would probably go, I just want to, I need to get a heart for God. If I get a heart for God, then I'll be generous. You know what Jesus is saying? Your heart follows your treasure. So put your treasure in life, put your treasure in the kingdom, and your heart's going to follow it. It's kind of the reverse of what we think. I've just got to stir up these emotions for God, and then I'll be right. Give it away, Jesus is saying, or you'll be trapped. Number three, don't miss Jesus. This is going to be super quick. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. I want to ask you this question in closing. Why does Jesus love the rich young ruler? Remember that, that little piece? kind of stands out, doesn't it? It's like Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Do you know why I think Jesus loves him? I think Jesus loves him because Jesus identifies with him. See, Jesus is the rich young ruler, isn't he? He had riches that were far richer than this man could ever imagine. He lived in the incredible glory, wealth, love and joy of the Trinity. And he left all of that wealth behind him. Why? To come and get you. That's what he did. You see, you're, the snare of, of riches and money and the temptation of it is not ultimately going to be dealt the death blow by anything other than realising that God is the one who actually becomes poor so that you can be rich. You see, Jesus gave away the ultimate wealth to get you. He did. And he calls you to give away your wealth to get him. You see, and if you get that, if you get what Jesus actually did on the cross, you're not going to ask how much you have to give away. You're going to ask how much you can give away. And the cross will become the standard for your generosity. You see, I read this article this week, and this is where I'm going to close. I read this article this week that asked the question about why the centre of Christianity keeps moving around the world. Have you noticed that? Other world religions tend to start in a place and that centre remains the centre. So where Islam starts, that's where Islam is. Where Buddhism starts, it kind of stays there. But Christianity seems to move around the place. So Christianity started at Jerusalem, but you wouldn't call Jerusalem the centre of Christianity now. And there was a time where Christianity, the centre of it was in Europe, but you wouldn't say it's in Europe now. Do you know where the centre of Christianity probably is now? It's actually probably in Africa. So if you go back, I think, of, uh, from memory, don't quote me on these, but I think if you go back in the 60s, I think the, the percentage of Christians in Africa was somewhere between 1% and 9%. Do you know what the percentage is now? They're saying it's up around 50% now. I reckon uh, back in, uh, I think it was 85, there were 16,500 Africans becoming Christians every day. Now, a question for you, and this is where we finish, is, why does the centre of Christianity keep moving? And the guy writing this article about it, you know what he suggests? He suggests because the centre of Christianity is about the cross, because it's about giving away treasure, because it's about giving away power. Whenever Christianity gets entrenched long enough somewhere and it becomes about treasure and power, then it moves. And God moves his power to people who don't care about power and wealth. Is that Australia? I don't know. I don't know. God's power is always moving toward people who are giving it away.